0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Sarah Grossman, author of Immeasurable Weather, Meteorological Data and Settler Colonialism from 1820 to Hurricane Sandy, published in 2023 by Duke University Press. Dr. Grossman, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, so happy to be here.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Um well, my name is Sarah and I am a environmental historian and a poet, uh two things that aren't often mixed together, but that's um where my where I found myself able to ask the most interesting and provocative questions within the Big field of environmental studies, and then within the um, s- this smaller contained field of environmental humanities, I'm an assistant professor of environmental studies at Bryn Mawr College, um, and I've published a book of poems, uh, which came out in 2018, with New Issues Poetry and Prose, and I just published my first academic monograph titled Immeasurable Weather with Duke University Press in August 2023. Broadly, my work sits at the intersection of U.S. environmental history and creative praxis. And um, some of the central questions I'm interested in across my research is how unruly matter from extreme weather to post-industrial environments, from medicalized bodies to storm surges, how all of that unruly matter um, ultimately gets formed into data. So um, I'm really curious about unruly and immeasurable matter and experiences across the spectrum um, and how these things do indeed get measured. More than that, I'm also interested in the forms of relation that are made possible through measurement uh, and what purpose particular measurement systems serve. So in uh, the aptly titled (laughs) immeasurable weather, I'm looking at that from the perspective of U.S. meteorological data culture from roughly 1820 to Hurricane Sandy.
0: Yeah, that's a a pretty good uh, lead into the first thing that I wanted to ask about, Mm -hmm. which was that you describe this collection of weather data as kind of a a way of building a world and it's happening within a settler colonial context. So what kind of world is settler colonialism building for itself through Mm -hmm. collecting weather data?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, it leads me back to uh, some of the first Research that I conducted for this book, um, which is contained in chapter one. Um, And this chapter is really about the origin point for data, for environmental data culture, specifically weather data culture in the US. Um, And in this chapter, I look at how um, what really started as a state effort to collect meteorological data um, eventually turned into a regional network across um, the east coast so what started in new york state as a uh, weather measurement data collection effort um, became a regional effort and then eventually that becomes a national effort um, so expanding from coast to coast in the u.s and chapter two takes that up a little bit this question of the worlds that are made possible by weather data collection uh, has a lot to do with um, growing interests and um, growing um, desires to build a nation state in the early 19th century so um, this uh, effort in new york state led by uh, the new york state regents in uh, the late 1820s and early 1830s to collect weather data from um, various geographic locations across the state what it made possible was um, a set of environmental knowledge points uh, that allowed um, n- new inhabitants of this region, um, settlers in this region, to um, claim the environment as uh, as a set of um, principles and points of understanding or knowledge. So... Um, that is kind of an example of what happens in the early century. And um, what really interested me in this uh, research from the early century was the way that um, weather data collection often traveled alongside of and was sort of deeply braided um, or intertwined with a system of land claims so one of the key figures in this first chapter uh, is um uh, uh, simone dewitt who is both the surveyor general for new york state so he's um, working on uh, apportioning uh um Haudenosaunee lands to settlers And at the same time, he is um, leading the way in developing a meteorological data collection effort in the state. So these are two of his big projects, and um, we can see in him as a figure that he is um, uh, interlacing this work of land claim along with environmental knowledge production for settlers. So uh, that was kind of a long way toward your question, um, but hoping I can illuminate some more of that as we go on.
0: Yeah, that, that was great. Um, so in the book, you make a point of distinguishing between land with a capital L and land with a lowercase
1: mm-hmm. l.
0: What's the difference between those terms?
1: Thanks for that question. It is, um, it's a question that's really important to me and <clears throat> helped to shape how I was thinking about um, land claims and land throughout the book. So that distinction between land as a with a capital L and land with a lowercase l follows from um, work by Max LeBron, who helps us understand that um, land with a capital L helps to indicate um, a a primary relationship. So a primary relationship with land, um, where Uh, land is not, um, necessarily indicating a relation to property, but, um, kind of a networked relation where, um, land also has, uh, desire, um, life force. And so it's not a kind of passive, uh, object, but, um, something that is held in relation with you, um, and land with a small L, um, is really referring to, um, in my usage land as property or um, as lebron says the concept of land from a colonial worldview whereby landscapes are um, common universal and everywhere even with great variation and so i think bringing this um, juxtaposition into the book really helped me distinguish um, how settler claims to land were um sort of ignoring land with a capital L, land in relation, Um, the way in which uh, land is always connected to place. um, And that science, as LeBron echoes elsewhere um, in their work, that um, science is always happening in relation and always happening um, connected to a particular place. And so um, with this meteorological project, it was almost necessary to see land with the lowercase l. Um, Without being able to do that, one might not have been able to expand this data project across the nation to standardize practices of um, collection. Um, At the same time, I think there are these little glimmers, especially with the early 19th century work, where observers are sort of... struggling against the standardization practice and they're um they are at times conceiving of land with a capital l uh in all of its uniqueness and the the kind of like the placeness of their uh of their data collection points um there's a really interesting moment where um some observers send in data sheets and uh, they send them into the New York State Regents. And there's like all of this ephemera on the sheets. And um, DeWitt and his team, uh, which at the time was composed of uh, Joseph Henry, um, who ends up leading the Smithsonian uh, effort later in the century, uh, and T. Roman Beck, they write back and they're like, you know, you, you can't put all of this extra stuff on the data form because it it is way too hard to process and we can't standardize this. So I think that's a really beautiful example for me of this moment where um, there's like a problem articulated with the data collection system and what it actually indicates and sort of signals toward is this larger, this larger um, relation that observers did have with land, with place, um, but the way in which that was sort of asked to be removed because it it didn't fit neatly into the system of um, standardization that the New York uh, regents and the state was attempting to create.
0: Yeah, I think it's so easy for us to just take for granted the standardization of weather data when you show that it was really this like project that had to be carried out. to uh, force data into that into that form and how much we lose from that standardization. Um, I was really struck by the example you give of the Dust Bowl where you have, uh, you know, settler colonialism creating a weather problem that its own weather data collection couldn't cope with. Could you, so could you say a little more about the Dust Bowl uh, case study and what that shows about the development of weather data?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I really appreciated studying this Dust Bowl period, both because there's a rich set of environmental history texts related to the Dust Bowl And um, there are these narratives of okay, we have this environmental crisis, and then um, we have this kind of big um, effort made by government actors to. Um, both diagnose this problem of um, soil treatment and to try and offer some solutions. And so there's somewhat in there kind of an optimistic story that we can tell from the perspective of environmental history about this period. But I think getting in there with both an environmental history lens and then also um, something closer to a data history or information studies lens Um, And even in attention to uh, thinking seriously about the ramifications of um, not working with land as relation, we can start to see some of like the muddy points in the Dust Bowl or the way in which this narrative of um, like this crisis happened and then we have these solutions and therefore this is kind of an optimistic story about um, an environmental crisis that that falls apart a little bit when you look at um, the the more messy points of data rendering in that moment um, and that one of the solutions to um from an information perspective one of the solutions to the crisis of recording and data capture in the dust bowl is um, not actually to get sort of down into the network of environmental relations, but to actually, um, begin to look at, uh, weather patterns and, um, climate systems from the perspective of the, the aerial or space space based, or what I think I termed galactic (laughs) in the book, um, slightly playfully. Uh, Because after the Dust Bowl and kind of in the middle of the Dust Bowl, there's this um, effort to uh, try to see what's happening from the air. And um, although the late 19th century brought a a kind of um, curiosity for aerial perspectives with um, the turn to weather kites and work being done at Blue Hill, Uh, meteorological observatory it really isn't until um, this moment after the dust bowl uh, the interwar um, and post-war period where aerial um, and kind of space-based perspectives uh, become really important, and they are so valuable in what they can envision and sort of help us understand about Earth systems. So a really invaluable turn. Yet at the same time, the dust bowl really as a crisis of um, of relationality and with um, a sort of the relation between those who are um, interfacing with the soil that that is the crisis of relation, Um, that really required a sort of a looking down, I think, as opposed to a looking up. Um, Although we can understand how these turns toward meteorological satellites, toward rocketry, and the, the visioning that was made possible by turning to the air, that that is really important. But I wonder also sometimes like what would have happened If we sort of got a little bit more microcosmic um rather than macrocosmic in this moment after the dust bowl what that might have made possible in terms of data culture and also environmental relation between um settlers and their environments
0: yeah uh so you talk about this weather data collection as being also kind of a patriarchal project like tied in with the settler colonial aspect but white women are also playing a key role in the story so how did white women play um, play a role in the development of meteorology and weather data
1: yeah I love that question and I'm really glad that you asked that um, both because it reminds me of my Kind of how I had to move around in this book in ways that were unexpected, and also of um sort of holding in mind that some of the historical actors in this book are are both like doing this really interesting and innovative work of meteorological science, yet at the same time they are participating and furthering. Um, harmful systems of domination, including patriarchal systems and um, settler colonial systems. So the um, computers uh, in human computers in eastern Pennsylvania in the mid 19th century are excellent examples of this. And chapter two takes that up um, a bit and explores how Uh, During this period of seemingly democratic science, this upswing of democratic science, um, when the Smithsonian Institution was uh, opening up data collection to this nationwide project. So basically, publishing in newspapers, um, sending letters to farmers, to schools, and saying, hey, are you interested in... um, collecting weather data because if you are we have got that job for you um and understand this was these were not uh paid positions they were volunteer positions that the smithsonian was um uh, attempting to uh gather um people for and folks across the nation were like, yes, I want to participate in this. I am so excited to be a part of a national scientific project. Sign me up, send me what I need. Um, The Smithsonian would send them data forms and uh, also instruments in most cases, and they could conduct their observations and send that data back to the Smithsonian Institution. So I think the first element um, to answer your question is that in this moment, it was actually possible for um, white women to write back to the Smithsonian, say, Smithsonian and say, hey, I want to be a weather observer. Can I have some material? Um, now, when they did this, they, they could indicate um, who they were. So they might have, and some of them did, in fact, indicate, I am I understand myself to be a woman. They would sign their names um, with a miss or a missus in front of them. But there was also space in this period, um, because all of this correspondence was happening via postal mail, there was space for correspondence actually to remain fairly uh, anonymous, both in terms of their um their gender uh and also their names um some folks would just sign a first uh initial and a middle initial and a last name um as a historian, I, um, in some cases, I'm able to uh, trace these folks back in the record, um, in census records with their addresses. And so it be- can become more clear, like, who was this person? But I think it's a really interesting moment of entrance for predominantly white women into um, into U.S. science culture that they were able to participate as observers. Now, At the same time, um, the Smithsonian Project is moving through several hands in its early years. So Joseph Henry, who um, is the first secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, is leading the meteorological project um, uh, throughout the 1850s. But there is a figure in the early years, uh, Lauren Blodgett, who is um, basically in charge of correspondence. And um, it's, he, he had sort of openly um, what we might call sexist views at the time of women in science. And uh, Henry was much more liberal in his opinions of women participating in science, white women participating in science. Um, And what we see actually with Plodgett is that there are fewer women um fewer white women actually corresponding in the network in the early years uh now that is um Sort of something I drew a conclusion regarding um, just after reviewing the the records of who was reporting at the time. And I would say that it's it was challenging to sort of reconstruct a sense of how like who was participating and how were they participating in this period. Um and so a lot of the work that I did was sort of like having to construct a a, um, a record of white women's participation in this moment with, um, with historical material that tended to favor the, um, saving of material related to men. So uh, that is inherently a challenge, um, but one that I was up for. Some other interesting things I found within the, this particular, the Smithsonian correspondence records, um, uh, Anna Bowen is a good example of this and she is a a character in chapter two or a historical actor in chapter two and um she it just loves recording um records of the rain and she writes to the Smithsonian so many times and it's like, hey I'm waiting for my rain gauge like do you think you're able to send it um and she never receives one and yet uh three male weather recorders in her county, um, um, in her region, do receive uh, rain gauges, they, they have their material, they're able to conduct their observation and send their data. And so for me, as I look back, it's um, curious that Bowen, despite her pleading, is not able to receive the material that she needs in order to conduct her observations. So all of that is happening with white women in science in the Smithsonian Meteorological Project. Then, (laughs) um, so the Smithsonian has all of this data and they're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to process all of this data? Like it's too much. And in 1856, Joseph Henry is pleading for public patients because the, um, observers who have collected data are writing to him saying like, Hey, we really want to see this weather data. Like, are you going to make this available to us? And he's like, listen, we have so much data. I'm having trouble processing it. This is an overload for our system. So Joseph Henry employs, um, James Coffin, who's a mathematician at Lafayette college and says, Hey, I need your help please help me process this data. And um, James Coffin, who's been uh, Joseph Henry's friend for some time, is like, I've got this. I can do this. Um, I am going to employ some public teachers from the Easton school system to act as meteorological calculators for me. And guess what? If I employ women, I can actually do this fairly, um, fairly, uh cheaply honestly so he um does employ women from the eastern public school system to act as meteorological computers and they are um toiling over this uh this data that has been collected from around the nation and um compiling compiling it so that um, Coffin can um, form these data abstracts, which are uh, first published in the 1850s uh, by the Smithsonian. So I have talked for a long time and I I would round this up by saying, you know, we see in the Smithsonian Meteorological Project that um, women observers are sort of fighting for their place in a scientific system that fundamentally privileges male practice. Um and so that seems to me like a story worth telling. At the same time, um the work too that the Easton um uh, public school teachers are doing uh that too seems like a story worth telling, right? Like they're involved in this in this massive project and um they're they're being paid less uh, than male counterparts, and they're also really challenging to find in the record. Uh, it was so tough to find historical evidence that they were doing the work that they did, um, and you can read more about that in chapter two. <laughs> but all of this being said, um, you know, if we re- if we return back to the observations of um dewitt and the new york state regents you know the way in which data collection was traveling hand in hand with land surveying with um the theft of indigenous lands across the northeast the system that white women are upholding is a harmful system um and there's more to be said here around um Uh, weather observers from the South who are also participating in systems of enslavement Um, many many observers from the South who are just sort of like loving their science um, are also participating in this systematic oppression of black populations um, across the region
0: yeah so we spent a lot of time talking about things in like the the 19th century into the early 20th century but your, your book actually brings the story all the way up to Hurricane Sandy in 2012. So to kind of skip forward a bit, what makes Sandy a good capstone to the story that you're telling?
1: It's a big book.
0: <laughs> and it was a big
1: <laughs> kind of like temporal range for me to want to grapple with. And um, <sighs> curiously, I... This book actually started with it started with Hurricane Sandy, um, and uh, the Albany Institute, and so I had kind of these temporal bookends for the book to begin with, and um, set out as a project for myself to try and understand what happened in between these times, and it seemed to me very obvious actually that what I saw through the New York State Regents and the Albany Institute in 1820, that um, it's there was a thread uh, moving between that moment in time and the kind of heavily mediated crisis of Hurricane Sandy. Um, and one of the early ways that I was kind of grappling with the relation between these two moments, despite the fact that they were separated by this incredibly you know uh expansive period of time um was that in the early 19th century um the the body figures so heavily in weather observation um there's a really beautiful uh line in one of the franklin institute journals um Written by James Espy, who was known as the Storm King in that period, where he's talking about observing clouds. Um, and when he's talking about this, he's really uh, utilizing and mobilizing the language of the body, like almost instrumentalizing the body in um, this moment of the observation of the sky. And um, what seemed so provocative to me with. Hurricane Sandy was the way, and with a lot of different, um, weather crises that are predominantly mediated through satellite images was the way in which the, um, the body was for, for consumers of this media was kind of abstracted from an experience of this storm of this crisis event. And so I became really interested in what happened to the body, um, and certainly, like this, even that line of questioning sort of sort of fractures when um, you think about these storm crises as both mediated events, um, but also localized events. Right? Like, yes, um, folks in Staten Island during Hurricane Sandy were like seeing images of the hurricane traveling barreling down up the coast toward their home but they were also um their homes were being flooded uh and i think that it was fascinating and kind of like haunting to me to understand too that there were folks who they were watching the news you know they saw that this hurricane was coming toward them yet they um many of them either they could not leave um and some chose to stay uh and many lost their homes um there was you know at the time although we've experienced more um extreme hurricanes and um death tolls with storms post 2012 but at the time hurricane sandy was an extremely deadly storm um for many and so i think for me i i really was interested and in wanting to know more about the space between um what was perceivable from satellite imagery and what was happening on the ground i hope that answers the question a little bit
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So as we're now moving towards the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were working on this book.
1: Oh, that's really great. Um, So, so many people. um, I, I have been so lucky to have space and time to work on this research Um, the smithsonian institution hosted me for a year as a um, pre-doctoral scholar uh pamela henson and kathy Dorman um, were so so helpful in my research um the center for humanities and information at penn state gave me some really invaluable time to do this work and um I'm at Bryn Mawr now, and I've felt really supported in um, finishing up this work here at Bryn Mawr. So, um, yeah, thank you to those centers and research institutions, Um, you know, being at the Smithsonian in the Institutional Archive Division, where, um, you know, also... Joseph Henry was when he was doing this work was really special to me. And um, I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, I was able to um, bring a sense of granularity to some of these more complicated questions we have around um, the history of data in the U.S., um, and especially um, data's relation to environmental crisis, which I think is um, a less often um, studied aspect of uh, data culture
0: yeah definitely so then that brings us to what's usually our final question here on the nbn which is about what you're working on next and in our little free recording chat you mentioned that you're actually doing some interesting things with your teaching uh, so, so you'd like to share with our listeners a little bit about that
1: yeah i um i I am. And I'm doing some stuff that really excites me. And I'm I'm also just really grateful to be able to think with the students I'm working with. Um, they bring some really fascinating perspectives to um, processes of environmental change and transformation. And I think that with this book, I'm kind of With this book having been done my gaze has turned a little bit more toward where the last chapter leaves off which is sort of um you know if we notice all of these things in the history of um, environmental data collection that signal toward moments of um, alternative or ways in which um, our relation between one another, but also earth systems could be a bit more grounded in um, respect reciprocity, but also like the agency of beings, right? That um, place, land, soil, air has its own desires and um, ways of being that might not necessarily be geared toward us. that those those things are exceptionally important and and things we're thinking about and like practicing a bit more um i've been trying to work with that in my classes and um, we've been kind of taking that on in a few different ways but this semester we're um working with a lot of local plants around um uh plant dye and pigment um so this the classroom right now is um, about color development in plants and poems. <laughs> <laughs> so we are both asking questions about color and transformation in poems and also um, cooking down some local plants to see some of the colors that they reveal. That has been um, an incredibly, wonderful experience in terms of witnessing transformation and slow change. So we, you know, also think a lot in my classes about what is required for a just transition and sort of how to balance um, desires and needs for the kind of um, quick shifts uh toward environmental justice with um, change that might be slower um and that transformation that might happen a bit uh, more gradually. so I think working with these plants has it's they have been really teachers for us in noticing that. Um, and then the other thing that uh, I've just recently started working on and dipping into has been um, different forms of weather printing. Um, I've been uh, playing around with some cyanotype, to try and think about how uh, one might record the weather that exceeds um, modes of numerical capture so um yeah that has a lot to do with art practice and craft and um sort of trying to render a sense of atmospherics or place that isn't necessarily um, instrument-based or numerical so that's some of the work that i've been doing and um I'm, I'm really glad that I, I got to share that with you all.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: This has been a conversation with Sarah Grossman, author of Immeasurable Weather, Meteorological Data and Settler Colonialism from 1820 to Hurricane Sandy, published in 2023 by Duke University Press.